Welcome to the new reality edition of Bite Marks Cafe right here on Hawaii Public Radio where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum and uh, today's topic is Indigenous Science. And of course, I'm happy to have with me today, I've got Katie Hinson. She's the Coastal Resilience Specialist over at Sea Grant and Rosie Aligado, and she's the Associate Professor over at uh, Oceanography and also part of Sea Grant. And I have them both on the show, and I want to welcome to what, welcome both of them to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha. Yeah, well, thanks for joining me. I want to start off by asking both of you to maybe do a little better job of uh, introducing yourself and what you do with respect to the work you do at um, the university and Sea Grant. So, Katie, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and, and share a little bit about what you do as the sort of coastal resilience specialist? Of course, yeah. Um, so I'm what's called extension faculty at the University of Hawaii Sea uh, Grant College program, which means I work on outreach and engagement related to climate change and resilience and supporting local community organizations and local government in preparing for climate change. And one of the things that's involved in that is um, looking at how can indigenous knowledge and local knowledge be brought into the conversation about resilience and the way that we steward our marine and coastal resources. Mm -hmm. So as part of that, one of my roles with Hawaii Sea Grant is um, being the projects and partnership coordinator for the Ulana Ike Center of Excellence. Um, and perhaps I'll let Rosie explain a bit more about the center since she is the director of the center. And that's called Ulana? Ulana? Ulana Ike. Ike. Okay. Well, Rosie, that's a, that's a good lead-in for you. Yeah, thank you so much, Katie. Um, so, yes, I have a joint appointment with Oceanography and with Sea Grant. Um, on the oceanography side, I use model systems and field experiments to think about and investigate how ecology informs evolution in a changing climate. And it, the organisms that we study are microbes, which mm -hmm. are everywhere. Um, we really ground our work in Uncle Emmett Aluli's, Dr. Noah Emmett Aluli's concept, right, that the health of the land is the health of the people and really the health of the Lahui. And so we root our research in a lot of meaningful academic collaborations and partnerships with Indigenous communities. And personally, I'm committed to training scholars to really draw upon multiple knowledge systems to address really key problems and empower the communities to understand and protect their resources. And that really folds in nicely with the Ulana Ike Center. So the word Ulana means to weave and Ike means to know or knowledge. Mm -hmm. And our main role is to act as a collaborative hub for Sea Grant partners, Sea Grant faculty and their partners who are engaging in multiple knowledge systems with the goal of really empowering our communities um, to be able to make decisions around their coastal resources, um, utilizing these different knowledge ways of knowing. And so with Ulana Ike, uh, has, has this been something that um, has been ongoing for a while or is it pretty, pretty new with respect to Seagram? Um, well, the Ulana Ike Center has had a couple of different incarnations. It used to be called the Center for Integrated Knowledge Systems. Mm -hmm. And um, it was originally, um, the original director was Dr. Puakia Nogomeyer, 
um, who has done such wonderful and amazing and impactful work in the field of translating Hawaiian language resources and bringing them into our more contemporary knowledge spaces. And um, when he retired, I became the director. And so the projects that we look at is we really are looking to build resources for how um, how researchers in the academic realm can create and build working partnerships that are reciprocal and ethical mm-hmm. um, between communities. We're also very interested in indigenous data sovereignty and knowledge stewardship. And we also have a really vested interest in supporting and growing um, indigenous foodways, such as aquaculture, indigenous aquaculture and um, you know other kinds of coastal resource harvesting and gathering um, practices. Oh, that's <laughs> that's great. I want to, you know, I think there's a, a number of, of uh, paths and avenues that we can take this conversation. So uh, I, diff- I do want to explore some of this, you know, in uh, data sovereignty and sort of knowledge stewardship. That's a, that's a very interesting topic. Now, Katie, with, um, with your work, uh, what, you know, what do you see as being some of the partnerships that are being cultivated between Sea Grant and, and others? Is it mostly other departments within the university or uh, it sounds very much like there should be a lot of partnerships with happening with community as well. Yeah, I would say both of those. We do a lot of work within the university around some of the themes that Rosie mentioned um, and with other academic partners related to uh, data sovereignty and indigenous knowledge sovereignty, as well as ethical research practices. So Mm -hmm. we try to build kind of peer groups and cohorts of individuals within academic spheres that are interested in doing uh, really deep and ethical partnerships with local communities. And then we also have direct partnership with local communities. So we work a lot with fish ponds around the state. We partner closely with Kua'aina Uluawamo and the Huimalama local IA, and then with um, a number of kind of individual on the ground place-based stewards as well. So there's a whole mosaic of partners, I would say. Mm-hmm. And and how would you both kind of define what indigenous science is? I mean, and, and we'll probably get more into that uh, as we talk about the, uh, the competition that you have, um, uh, that you are cu- you know, currently launching. But how would you go ahead and sort of define indigenous science? Does it, does it have to uh, harken back to uh, a time frame, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years? Of where, where, how do you define that, uh, that period of time? You know, that's such a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie and I are in the middle of teaching a course right now, and, and yesterday we spent quite a bit of time even pondering, like, wow, what is science? Um, and I think the broadest way that we can kind of capture it is first define science. And, um, you know, I think science is, a way in which humans have um, kind of learned about the natural world and sought to understand it. Mm-hmm. And when you add that adjective of indigenous to it, we're really talking about the people who are both the living, you know, descendants of indigenous people doing the science, but we're also talking about implementing and, and weaving in the knowledge and those ways of knowing and ways of gathering knowledge. And that can be everything from continuing and perpetuating practices um, to in, in order to make knowledge and gain knowledge and share knowledge. So um, it, it's quite broad, but I would say it is 
it can be distinguished very much, you know, pretty easily from Western science, which is, I think, the conventional um, science that, that we've grown up learning in school, for example. Um, but maybe some of us are lucky enough to, to have that um, in our curriculum. Um, Katie, do you have anything to add on to that? Yeah, I guess to build on Rosie's point, um, that some of the distinctions about indigenous science are that it's guided very much by indigenous worldviews and values and protocols. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that we're thinking about in the context of this funding opportunity is how can we support science that seeks to investigate the natural world, but also to really um, promote community health and community empowerment. Mm -hmm. And I think that Indigenous science also involves a kinship view of the world, right? Like humans and the natural world are not separate. We are all family. We are all relatives. And that's very integral to the methodology of Indigenous science. And then there is a time element, as you mentioned, right? This is a multi-generational kind of knowledge that's carried over very, very long time periods, much longer than what we might think of as Western science or or academia science. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're tapping into all of those elements. You know, I do want to give yeah. you a chance, uh, Katie and, and Rosie, maybe to share an example, because I think you, you mentioned a couple, and I'd, like, I'd love to get uh, uh, maybe a discussion around some uh, actual, let's say, work that might be underway, perhaps with, uh, you know, uh, fish ponds or, you know, other kinds of natural systems. So we're going to hold that thought. We'll be right back at this short break to continue our conversation with Katie Hinson. Coastal Resilience Specialist over at Sea Grant, and Rosie Aligado, and she's the Associate Professor over at Oceanography. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. If you're just joining us, we're talking about ing- indigenous science, and we're talking with Katie Hinson, and she's the Coastal Resilience Specialist over at Sea Grant, and Rosie Aligado, uh, Associate Professor over at Oceanography and also part of Sea Grant. And right before the break, we were talking about you know, various uh, methodologies that might be considered uh, indigenous science, and, and, and maybe, um, Katie, maybe you can start us off. Uh, you know, what are some of the examples that might be actually being, you know, worked on right now that uh, would be a good example for people to, to, to think about, hear about, you know, that incorporate in indigenous science? Hey, are you still there? Hey, are you there? Okay. Maybe I'll fill in for her. Okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> Feel free to, <laughs> Rosie. <laughs> I don't yeah, know what happened to Katie. <laughs> I'm sure she'll call back. Um, Sorry, uh, I'm here. So you were asking for, <laughs> I think you were asking for a couple of examples. Yeah, right, effort. right, right. Yeah, um, well, you had mentioned fish ponds, and I think that's a really great example. Um, you know, historically, we know from our Mo'olelo and Ka'au that fish ponds were really invented by our Akua Ku'ula. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing about that story is that it's an, event, an innovation that came out of necessity, right? So if you read the Mo'olelo, there was a famine on the land, and he, and Ku'ula was a head fisherman. And, you know, actually, it's not clear if it's famine on the land or famine in the sea, but what we know is that 
he had this like amazing scientific knowledge about fish and ecology and the whole ecosystem. And he was able to put the whole picture together and see that if he built a wall to contain these nutrients, he could really stimulate phytoplankton growth. And that would really then stimulate um, the production of herbivores that would allow the people to have sustainable fish all year round, that they were no longer solely dependent on, you know, deep sea fishing or near shore coastal resources. And that these fish ponds were so amazing because they could even reseed, you know, the coastal, the coast, you know, the coral reef. Mm-hmm. And so that example is something that to me is very hopeful for today. You know, we talk a lot about how can we become more food and, you know, get, gain more food sovereignty. But then at the same time, we also have questions about, oh, my gosh, sea level rise. Um, and fish ponds, I see, as, as really these sentinel sites for both food sovereignty as well as sea level rise because, you know, they're on our coastlines. By studying fish ponds, we can learn both about how our coastlines are changing. We can kind of think about how food production might change. We can think about how if we restore them using biocultural or indigenous-based methodologies, how might we re-maximize that and how can we utilize that to feed our communities? Um, and, and that's just one example um, that's so important. And and also to acknowledge that, you know, people's traditions are very different. There aren't fish ponds on every island, right? Like Koholave doesn't have a fish pond mm-hmm. because its ocean is so abundant. And so I think something that's, that's also very important about indigenous science is that it's specific, right? It's not one size fits all. It's, it's very specific knowledge that is the right fit for the right place with the right people. Um, and I think that's you know, it's not kind of like a monolith. There's many different methodologies and many different ways of, of learning about our land and our, our resources. And, and Rosie, I, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, uh, Brian Glazer's work over at... Yeah, the, uh, yeah, he's a professor in my department. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, what a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> and... and yeah. <clears throat> You know, we don't have Brian on, so you know, <laughs> uh, we'll take the liberty of of maybe interpreting some of the work that he does. But you know, I'm I'm familiar with some of the uh, sensor work that he's he's done over at uh, Heia Fish Pond, and and maybe what I I'd like to maybe ask you, uh, Rosie, is how do you see you know the the data gathering and the the uh, information that is revealed, whether it's uh, you know, weather patterns or tidal patterns or sea level rise. Uh, and how does that kind of like then translate into supporting, you know, indigenous science and indigenous knowledge when you when you now have the ability to sort of correlate that with um, scientific methodology of, of gathering data? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that Brian's work is really innovative in that it is very much hinging on low cost, right? So that increases access mm-hmm. um, to science for many of these um, organizations, and that's really important. And with that has to come the ability for them to steward that data, right? And and for them to gain benefit from that data. So I'm all for it. And I think it's also important that we have the foundation, the framework, the funding, and the resources so that those communities can benefit um, from that data, right? Because um, that data can then turn into knowledge and wisdom that can help shape uh, you know, that in the short term can shape governance, management mm-hmm. of that fish pond, and in the longer term policies, and in the even longer term, um, you know, government policies. I always say that policy starts with research. Um, so 
that's really where I can see the potential and put it in the hands of the people. And, and uh, you know, I think you can hear that, that really our center is rooted in empowering um, local communities to really be able to use the information that comes from their place mm-hmm. to help them. And, and um, Katie, maybe I can, I can get you to chime in on uh, perhaps the work that's being done in indigenous uh, data sovereignty. I mean, how does that... How does that work sort of weave into what uh, Rosie is talking about, and, and where does that emanate from? Does that emanate from Sea Grant? Does that emanate from oceanography? Where's, where's the nexus of that indigenous data sovereignty work? Well, I would say that we at the Olana Ike Center within Hawaii Sea Grant are learning from a lot of amazing scholars and, and community leaders when it comes to indigenous data sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of the the motivation for getting involved in that as a theme um, is seeing that as we increasingly try to bring in Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous science into decision-making practices and build this this weaving of um, Indigenous knowledge with more Western science, with more academic institutions, that comes with certain kinds of responsibilities to make sure that that knowledge is stewarded in a responsible way. Right? because there's a lot of indigenous knowledge that is not meant to be open to everyone mm-hmm. that has been cared for in very particular intentional ways for many generations. And we want to make sure that we have protocols and practices in place to continue that stewardship in a responsible matter. So that's how we've gotten more involved in, in that as an issue. Can you, can you sort of encapsulate what uh, you know indigenous data sovereignty looks like? I mean, how does that... How does the data sovereignty, um, I guess, from a from a respect for you know the stewardship of of that data, how does that manifest itself, you know, in I don't know policy or rules and regulations? Okay, yeah, so I think it can manifest. So, oh. oh yeah, oh no, sorry, go Katie first, yeah. Okay, I'll start, and Rosie will probably have more to add to it. Okay. I think it can manifest at both the project level, right? So if um, if we're partnering with, uh, we've been using fish ponds as an example, with mm-hmm. a particular fish pond on a research project, um, what kind of information is going to be collected? Where is it going to be stored? Who is going to have access to it? Mm-hmm. How is What kind of products are going to be made from it? Um, who might use that information then into the future to do additional research mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. come up with additional knowledge. All of those are really important questions to consider. Right. And then I think it also happens at the systemic scale, right? Um, where we're thinking about how does the university enter into partnership with communities? What do those agreements look like? Mm-hmm. What are the different responsibilities and privileges when it comes to sharing and accessing and benefiting from science and data as those partnerships move forward. So it happens at a lot of different scales, and I'll let Rosie add to that. Yeah, very good. Yeah, Rosie, what's your what's your uh, kind of take on that? Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to, to kind of like bring some rubber beats the road and that's in bolt thinking to this. I think many of us are kind of familiar with, you know, big data and open access, mm-hmm. open science maybe, mm-hmm. um, and, and there's fair guiding principles for, science, for data management, right? It, has, it should be findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable and and thanks to you know partners that we have been learning so much from um there's a global indigenous data alliance 
there's been so much work um, from our relatives on Maori and also our, you know, relatives on the continent, the U.S. Indigenous Data Sovereignty Network. They've actually developed um, principles to go right alongside these FAIR principles, and it's called CARE principles for Indigenous Data Governance. And CARE stands for C is collective benefit, A is authority to control, R is responsibility, and E is ethics. So um, these are... Um, operationalizable mm-hmm. kind of principles that you can apply when you to any kind of data that you're working with and um, these groups have been doing some really great work towards you know how do we actually put these into practice and so we've been learning a lot from them and we've been kind of looking at um, how can we begin to do this in our own work personally and then how can we begin to look at this as an institution because um, we want University of Hawaii to be right alongside the cutting edge because we work with a lot of Native Hawaiian communities and more. No, that's great. And, uh, you know, this is a fascinating topic. We could probably <laughs> talk about this for, you know, the, the rest of the show. I, I, I do want to get to the um, Indigenous Science competition that, uh, Katie, you folks are launching. So we will hold that thought. We'll be right back after a short break to continue our conversation with Katie Hinson. Coastal Resilience Specialist over at Sea Grant, and Rosie Aligado from, uh, she's Associate Professor over at Oceanography. And of course, this is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum right, right here on Hawaii Public Radio. And of course, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Katie Hinson, Coastal Resilience Specialist over at Sea Grant, and Rosie Aligato from uh, the School of Oceanography, Associate Professor there. And we're talking about uh, a variety of things from indigenous science to indigenous data sovereignty and the various projects that are, are uh, ongoing. And what really kind of prompted this conversation was uh, a competition that, Katie, you guys are launching from, from uh, Sea Grant, which involves digital science, indigenous science. And, and, and Katie, I'm kind of curious, like, what, are you, what kinds of projects are you looking for? And most of what we've just talked about today have, have been uh, pretty, pretty academic, but are you open to... Um, let's say high school uh, is it primarily for college students? I mean, what what are you looking for in this indigenous science competition? Yeah. So, um, in terms of eligibility, the funding is open to nonprofit organizations okay. in Hawaii or the Pacific Islands, and we're hoping that the project teams will include at least one cultural practitioner or Aina-based steward. Mm -hmm. So the intention is really to fund projects that are led by community-based organizations, and those might be in partnership with a more kind of academic partner, or they might not be. Um, They might be independent projects based on the skills and and the knowledge of those community-based organizations. And and you said this is uh, uh, funded, I think, primarily what through for, through Sea Grant Sea Grant funding, or what are who are the primary funders of this? Yeah, so this is part of our regular Hawaii Sea Grant research funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College Program has a long history of funding applied science. Um, we put out calls for for funding proposals um, every other year. 
And we often fund projects that are led by researchers at universities in partnership with Pacific Islander or Native Hawaiian communities. And those projects have really amazing impact. But we wanted to craft a funding opportunity that more directly centered Indigenous values and Indigenous science. And so that was where the idea for this uh, opportunity was born um, and why we're kind of focusing in on supporting projects that are led by community-based nonprofits and include on-the-ground practitioners and stewards. So when you say community-based nonprofits, uh, Rosie, I mean, what what do you have in mind? Do you, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a number of, of uh, nonprofits that are working in, in uh, this particular area, but I would be, I would venture to say that uh, are they teaming up with let's say academicians uh, like yourself or do you think a lot of their project proposals might be self-contained within those nonprofits? So we are extremely um, open to all kind of range of folks who want to kind of consider this opportunity and I think you know one of the hallmarks of indigenous science is that it's intrinsically very Mm cross-disciplinary and we, one of the one of the main things we want to get across is for this, we believe that community practitioners, cultural practitioners, are scientists, and they don't need um, they don't necessarily need academicians to to do their work. And so, if they do want to partner with someone, um, that's great. Um, if if they if they don't, if they feel like you know we have these questions, we're practitioners. Um, you know, we know how to how we want to collect the data. We have methodologies. Maybe we do kilo. Maybe we're fishermen. Um, maybe we're hula stewards, hula mm. practitioners who are gathering. Um, we are totally open um, to to all of that, and we really want to trust the process and see what we get. And so that's why we're very welcoming of of many different institutions. And and we do want to actually emphasize that, yeah, we are looking forward to community organizations who feel that they can do it on their own. Like it is not necessary to partner um, with an academic institution. Oh, Katie, do you want to um, add on to that at all? Yeah, no, that's great. And so, so Katie, what um, what are the ranges of, of potential? Is it a whole lump sum sort of uh, winner take all, or do you you know is it kind of you can portion it out? Yeah, so right now we're looking at funding uh, projects in the range of $10,000 to $25,000, and we have the resources currently to be able to support between two and four projects in that range. But this is kind of a a little bit of a pilot effort. This Mm -hmm. is the first year we've done this, and um, we've gotten a good amount of interest so so far, and so we're really hopeful that um, we'll continue to get interest, and our intention is that if it's successful, we will have more resources to put into this opportunity in the future and that it will be part of our regular biannual funding. Wow, this is exciting. So when when does the application window open? So the application window open is open now. Uh-huh. Um, we have a couple of informational webinars coming up if folks are interested in learning more. And um, you can find lots of information on the opportunity on our website, which is PacificIslandsIndigenousScience.com. And is there a closing date? Yes. So the closing date for the overall competition is October 20th. Okay. So there's some time still. And we're asking folks to submit a statement of interest by September 1st. Very so good. So 
you can still submit a proposal on October 20th if you don't get a statement of interest in, but the statement of interest helps us to understand what's the range of people that are interested in applying and to um, provide kind of more informational opportunities for those folks. Well, Katie, thanks uh, thanks a, much, a lot for all this information. And Rosie, we've got Katie Hinson. She's the Coastal Resilience Specialist over at Seagrad. Rosie Aligato. Associate Professor over at Oceanography. And of course, I want to thank them both for joining me today. And of course, thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll reprise a show that we did on the Residence for Innovative Student Entrepreneurs or RISE. If you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. Our engineer is David Chong. You can catch us on HPR One every Wednesday or anytime via the HPR app or your favorite podcast application. You stay safe. You stay awesome. We'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bye.